0: there are two words for crown in the New Testament. One is diadema, which means a royal crown, and from which we get our English word diadem. The other word is stephanos, which means a victor's crown, from which we get the popular name Stephen. Now, a person doesn't have to do a whole lot to get a diadema, a royal crown. It's inherited. You just have to be in the right family. Prince Charles knows that. But the only way to get a Stephanos, a victor's crown, is to earn it. And with that in mind, chapter 6 verse 8 through chapter 7 highlights a man who was well named, Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. And Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a stephanos of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Stephen fulfilled the conditions of that promise. And Stephen is proof to us that the impact of a person's life is not measured by its length. He had only been a deacon for a few days. He might not have even made it to his first deacon's meeting. And we only have record of one sermon that he preached, and when it ends, we don't have a list of his converts. When a sermon is over, we don't read anything like 3,000 people were saved or multitudes were added to the church. And yet his brief ministry was essential in God's plan of evangelism. How? Two ways. Number one, God used Stephen as a planter. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.6 that in God's economy, some plant and some water and others harvest. Stephen planted. You say, well, his seed fell on pretty hard ground. Yeah, it did. But Stephen is the one who initially planted the seed on the heart of a very significant individual. And he's named in chapter 7 in verse 58. It says, And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus first heard the gospel and saw the gospel lived out through the life of Stephen. And though that seed didn't grow roots initially, I'm certain that Stephen had an impact on the life of this young man, Saul, who later became the apostle Paul. In fact, there's a sense in which as these men laid their robes at the feet of Paul, Stephen's mantle fell on him. because Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. So was Paul. Stephen boldly confronted the Jews. So did Paul. Whenever Paul went to a Gentile city, where was the first place he went? To the synagogue until they kicked him out. And Stephen encountered fierce opposition. So did Paul. In fact, Paul was later stoned and left for dead in Lystra. And I just imagine that as Paul was being stoned, the image of Stephen was fresh in his mind. Stephen's life and death had an indelible imprint on Paul's future ministry. God used Stephen as a planter. But secondly, he also used Stephen to scatter. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Last part of that verse says, and on that day, the day Stephen was martyred, A great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Slide down to verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. As a result of Stephen's death, persecution broke out, and the church was scattered, but they didn't run to hide, they ran to preach. And the early church might have been content to stay in Jerusalem and never fulfill the Great Commission if it hadn't been for the persecution that drove them out to take the message elsewhere. And so God used the martyrdom of Stephen to scatter the church so that it might grow even larger. And so Stephen was a victor in life and death. And as such, he is one of the most outstanding individuals in all of Scripture. It's no exaggeration to put him on a par with Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, the other apostles. He was an outstanding man. Now the world doesn't recognize greatness, but that shouldn't surprise us. Because the world measures greatness by such things as popularity, prestige, titles, material possessions. But they don't understand true greatness. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why they beheaded Paul. That's why they executed Peter. And that's why they killed Stephen. And we already knew that Stephen was a great man. We learned that last time when the church decided they were going to choose seven who were full of the spirit and wisdom out of thousands of men. They chose Stephen and he heads the list of those chosen. The passage we want to begin looking at this morning will give us even further insight into this great man of God. And I want to look at him in three aspects. The man, the message, and the martyr. Now, I know some of you are looking at your bulletin and thinking we're going to cover all of that this morning. Rest assured, we're not. Because i got to go to Africa. So I, I can't stay here today. We're just going to look at the first point the man. And we find that in chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And here we discover three things about Stephen the man his character, his courage, and his countenance. First of all, we see his character in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now we already learned back in verse 5 that Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So what was it that filled up Stephen's life? What is it that would be obvious to you if you met Stephen? Four things stand out. He was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, and full of power. First of all, he was full of of faith Stephen was not just a man who had faith he was filled with faith and that's probably most evident when we turn over to chapter 7 and verse 55 and there it tells us while these individuals were picking up stones getting ready to stone him verse 55 says but being full of the Holy Spirit he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was in a dilemma, but he wasn't looking at his circumstances. He was looking at the Lord. And that's what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When the stones started flying, Stephen was looking up. His faith enabled him to look beyond the temporal to the eternal. And that explains why he was so calm. I ride around today and I see these bumper stickers on, usually on kids' windshields and they say, no fear. And sometimes I'm tempted to test them. But you know, the only way you can honestly wear that label is to be full of faith so that you can see the eternal Lord beyond the temporal circumstances. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, he was calm. He had no fear. You know why? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 27 tells us. It says, by faith. He left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. He had faith, therefore he had no fear. And what was the key to that faith? He looked beyond the temporal king to the unseen eternal king. That's faith. Could you honestly say this morning that you are full of faith? Most of us are more like the disciples in Mark chapter 8. They watched Jesus multiply bread and feed 4,000 people. And to drive that point home, Jesus had them go out with baskets and pick up the scraps. And they came back with seven baskets full of leftover bread and fish. Immediately, it says, they got into the boat and started across the Sea of Galilee. You know what their first conversation was? We forgot to bring any bread. What were they doing? They were looking at their circumstances instead of looking at the Lord. They didn't have faith enough to look across the boat and realize they were sitting in the boat with the one who had the power to create bread. And they were worrying about not having enough. Aren't we that way oftentimes? We trust God with our eternal destiny. We don't think He can handle our needs today. More often, we're like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9, 24, who said, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. Stephen was full of faith. In the circumstances of life, he was looking up. Now let me add a footnote here, because there's a popular but errant teaching today that if you have enough faith, you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you have enough faith, you can just name it and claim it. Or blab it and grab it. To those who may be influenced by that teaching, I would have you note that Stephen had all the faith there is. He was full of faith. And what did that get him? It got him stoned to death. And he was not alone, because if you read the last half of Hebrews chapter 11 you'll find many others who by faith lost their lives faith is not about me changing the plans of God faith is about me having the confidence to obey him no matter what that was Stephen, full of faith secondly he was full of the Holy Spirit we're told that that's true in Acts 6:5. When he was being selected as one of the deacons, we're also told that that was true in Acts 7:55, when he was having opposition, when people were gnashing their teeth, their teeth at him, which tells me that Stephen wasn't affected by public opinion polls. He was filled with the Holy Spirit when things went well. He was filled with the Holy Spirit when things did not go well. Now, why is that? Two reasons because being filled with the Holy Spirit gives a person boldness. We learned that back in chapter 4 and verse 31 where it says they had the prayer meeting and the place where they met was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the Word of God how? With boldness. You see, Stephen didn't care how people voted about his preaching. What he cared about was delivering the truth with boldness. That's all that mattered to him. It didn't matter if people applauded or they stoned him. He was going to give the same message. You know, several years ago, sheep ranchers in a section of Montana were losing their sheep to coyotes. And they tried several ways to protect their flocks. They tried electric fences, odor spray, traps, all failed. One lady lost 50 lambs, one per week, to the coyotes. That is until she got a llama. Now, llamas are strange-looking animals, but they have a couple of interesting characteristics. One is that they stand tall. Llamas have great posture. And the other unusual characteristic is that when they see something out of the ordinary, they walk straight at it. So they don't appear to be afraid of anything. This lady bought llamas and the coyotes couldn't stand their courage and so they left her sheep alone. That's what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It gives us the boldness to stand tall and to walk straight into the unknown. See, we don't know what tomorrow may hold, but we know the one who holds tomorrow. And when I am filled with the Holy Spirit, I have the boldness to keep my head high and walk straight into the unknown. Second reason Stephen wasn't affected by public opinion polls is because being filled with the Spirit means being empty of self. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit unless you are first empty of you. You see, Stephen was not full of himself... If he had been, when the opposition started coming, he would have changed his tune. But he stuck to his message no matter what. The prerequisite for being filled with the Holy Spirit is surrendering all to him. It's dying to myself. It's emptying myself of me. And as you sit here as a Christian this morning, you are either filled with the Holy Spirit or you are filled with with yourself. There are only those two options. and We like to think there's a 75% option or a half-filled option, but I don't read of anybody in Scripture who was partially filled with the Holy Spirit. See, God doesn't operate that way. With God, it's always all or nothing. Stephen understood that, and he gave his all. Not just the moment that he sacrificed his life to the stones. You see, he had given his life long before that. He had died to himself long before that, and that's why he was characterized as a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Third thing we know about his character is that he was filled with grace. What does it mean in verse 8 when it says, Stephen was full of grace? Well, I think in one sense, it means that God had given him the grace of to handle persecution and even death. Annie Johnson Flint captures that thought in her hymn, He giveth more grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God gave Stephen greater grace to handle the greater trial. But I think in another sense, this is describing how God's grace flowed out of Stephen's life to others. Stephen was characterized as a person who reached out in grace to other people. That's one of the reasons why he was chosen to be one who ministered to widows. And that's most evident at the end of chapter 7 and verse 60 when we're told that while the stones were crushing out his life, Stephen was praying for the forgiveness of those men. That's grace. How do you have that kind of grace? You empty yourself of yourself so that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, so that your focus is not only on the Lord... But on the needs of others. That was true of Stephen. He was full of grace. And then the fourth thing we know about his character is that he was full of power. And the evidence of this power is seen at the end of verse 8. It says he was full of power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen did more than just help oversee the distribution of food in the early church, he also preached and performed miracles. In fact, Stephen here, Philip in Acts chapter 8 and Barnabas in Acts 15 are the only individuals apart from the apostles who perform miracles in the book of Acts. And so it was evident that Stephen was full of power. Well, there's his character. In relation to God, he was full of faith and totally yielded so that he was full of the Holy Spirit. In relation to others, he was full of grace and he manifested great spiritual power. Second point, his courage, verses 9 to 14. Notice verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. In the city of Jerusalem, there were a number of synagogues because there were many... Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews there. And they tended to divide themselves up depending on where they came from. In fact, according to the Jewish Talmud, there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, so he was certainly a member of one of these synagogues. Now, the wording's not real clear in verse 9 whether there's one synagogue here or three synagogues here. It's my preference because of the cultural differences in these groups that there were probably three synagogues referred to here because the freedmen were those who had previously been slaves in the Roman Empire but released. The Cyrenians and Alexandrians were from two of the major cities in northern Africa. And Cilicia and Asia were people from modern-day Turkey. Now, you remember that Paul's hometown was Tarsus, in Cilicia which tells us that Paul was a member of one of these synagogues which explains why we run into him later in chapter 7. Now why were these synagogues so upset? Well we're not told here but I assume that Stephen went there and preached. He said, what better place to preach than over there where they already have the scriptures open and are talking about them. And so he went there and preached. And as a result, it says, they rose up and argued with him. Stephen had the courage to preach in the synagogues. The result was predictable. They rose up and argued. And verse 10 says, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen's standing before these group of men from these various synagogues. They're arguing with him, but they can't cope with him. Because their human reasoning cannot cope with his divine wisdom. And their reliance on their human spirits cannot cope with the Spirit of God in Stephen. And I'm sure they must have been infuriated. I know one of them was, and that was Saul of Tarsus. Because he took great pride in his intellect. He was the one who sat at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel. He's the one who would later say in Philippians 3 5 that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet he can't cope with Stephen. And these other men can't as well. And when they're unable to defeat Stephen in a fair debate, they work off other tactics. Verse 11. Then they secretly induce men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They went out and recruited and coached false witnesses to accuse Stephen, same tactic they used with the Lord Jesus. And they accused him of blasphemy, the same thing they accused Jesus of. Now it's interesting, if you look at the order here, they accused him of blaspheming Moses, then God. That sort of explains their priority. Uh, They were so legalistic that they had actually lifted Moses, the blasphemy of Moses, ahead of even the blasphemy of God. Now, these are the charges. They are false, and yet yet they're not just coming out of the blue because they're really based on things that Stephen has been saying because they're accusing him of blaspheming Moses, and the reason for that was that Stephen was preaching that the law could not save. And they were accusing him of blaspheming God, the reason being because Stephen was saying this physical temple is not the place where God dwells. God is now dwelling by his spirit in his believers, the church. And Stephen was preaching that Jesus was God, and they took that as blasphemy. And who are they presenting these charges to? Verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. The authorities prior to this had been afraid of the people when they dealt with the apostles in chapter 5 and verse 26. Now they won the people over. And I'm sure Stephen had been pretty popular with the people because he had healed people, performed signs and wonders. I'm sure they were gathered around. Now we see how fickle the crowds are because now they come accusing him of blasphemy and they turn on Stephen, just like they turned on the Lord Jesus. And so they arrested him brought him before the council, the same council Jesus stood before, the same council that the apostles earlier stood before. Verse 13, and they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. Now their accusations are more specific. He speaks against this holy place, the temple, and he speaks against the law, and he does so incessantly. He won't stop. And now they give their evidence, verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. The phrase, this Nazarene, expresses their contempt for Jesus because they believe that no good thing came out of Nazareth. And they accuse Stephen of the very thing that they accuse Jesus of, and that is saying that he would destroy the temple in three days. Jesus never said that. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, what he said was, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And right after that in verse 21, we're told he was speaking of the temple of his body. But that accusation worked on Jesus and so they now tried on Stephen. And then they go on to say, not only that, but that he would alter the customs that Moses handed down. That's probably based on the fact that Stephen was preaching that the new covenant in Jesus Christ was replacing the old covenant that came through Moses. He was claiming that the reality had now come to replace the ritual. So here's Stephen standing before the Supreme Court of Israel. He's not just... Facing the kind of charges that the apostles did that he was preaching Jesus, he's facing an accusation of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, against the law. Now, we saw his courage when he stood in front of the synagogues. How's he do now when he stands before the Supreme Court of Israel? Well, we're not going to see that until we get into chapter 7, but. I want to give you a little preview. Look over at chapter 7 and verse 51. Speaking to the council, Stephen says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now that is not politically correct language. Here's a man of courage. You are stiff-necked, he says to them. You are always rejecting the Holy Spirit. He was a man of courage. And so we've seen Stephen's character, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. We've seen his courage. He stands up to anybody and everybody. Now let's see his countenance in verse 15. Stephen had been accused of speaking against everything that was holy. They've portrayed him as the lowest of the low, I'm sure that the council expected to look over at Stephen and see the devil himself. What did they see? Verse 15, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. That's good. He's done all this thing. He's blasphemed everything and everybody that's holy, and he looks like an angel. What's an angel look like? Well, Luke has described several of them in his gospel and earlier on in the book of Acts. Here's some of the things he said about them. He said they were white, dazzling, with the glory of the Lord shining around them. What's that tell you about Stephen's face? His face was radiating the glory of God. He's heard all these accusations. They look at Stephen and here's this guy glowing with the glory. You know what the council had to think at that moment? There was only one other person in history who had this experience. And that was Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. His face was shiny. He had to put a veil over his face, remember? So they're here saying, well, he's he's blasphemed Moses, and now they look over at him and he's got the same experience Moses had. He's glowing with the glory of God. Stephen didn't have to say, anything because God was bearing witness to him. He was saying, yeah, Moses was my servant and Stephen is my servant. The glory came in the old covenant. Now more glory has come in the new covenant. But sadly, the Sanhedrin didn't listen to the witness of God or Stephen. And in chapter 7, we're going to find them throwing stones at this angel face. But he wasn't defeated. He was victorious. He got the Stephanos. He got the victor's crown because he was a man who had godly character, godly courage, and godly countenance. We're going to close in prayer. Before we do, I'm going to ask Michael if he would come up and then at the close of the prayer give you an opportunity to come up and give him a big hug today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage which describes your servant, Stephen. And Father, as we call him a great man, we realize that the things that made him great were not inherent in Stephen. They were things that you gave him. You're the one who filled him with your spirit. You're the one who filled him with faith and grace and power. And, Father, I pray that the challenge for our lives today might be that we might be able to learn to empty ourselves of ourselves so that you might fill us with all that you want to fill us with and so that you might use us, even if it's brief like Stephen, to impact the world for you. We pray in Jesus' name.